0: We've been away from this book for several weeks, but this morning we return. If you're here with us and you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to use one of those provided in the seats in front of you. Uh, If you're using one of those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 742. 742 in the Pew Bibles. So as we come back to the book of Daniel, we find ourselves in a new situation. Uh, Back in Daniel 1, Daniel and his friends were taken as exiles into Babylon by a man named King Nebuchadnezzar. And after they were taken, other exiles were taken, and eventually the whole nation of Judah was conquered and taken into exile. So take a moment and just think about that. Uh, Put yourself into their shoes. For decades, you are living in a strange land with strange customs. For decades, you are removed from your home. You are removed from life as you once knew it. As years pass by, a whole new generation of Israelites is born who have never even known what it's like to live in Judah. Their whole lives have been lived in Babylon under the oppression of the Babylonian Empire. You may remember how Psalm 137 records the sadness of these Jewish exiles so far away from their home. Hear the sorrow in these words. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Unlike the northern kingdom of Israel, which was taken into exile by Assyria and utterly lost forever, Judah's exile was not permanent, and it was not unending. The prophet Jeremiah had escaped to Egypt, and he sent a letter from Egypt to these exiles in Babylon. And we have that letter in Jeremiah chapter 29, and it begins by saying, "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile in Jerusalem.'" from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then here's what God said to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So it is in Babylon that Daniel, a Jewish exile, became the right hand man to King Nebuchadnezzar. It has been during this time of exile that God has providentially worked to put three Jewish young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into high positions where they can have some influence to help protect God's people in exile. And how long would this whole ordeal last? How long would these Jews have to remain in Babylonian exile? Well, Jeremiah's letter included these words. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Many of you know that verse. Did you know that's the context of that verse? That's where it comes from. It's to these these Jewish exiles in Babylon. God says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So 70 years would be the full length of time. Well, dear friends, as we come to Daniel 5, we come to the end Of the exile. For it is in this very chapter, Daniel 5, that Babylon is going to be conquered by the Persians. It will be King Cyrus of Persia who will issue the great edict that allows all the Jews to leave Babylon and to return to their homeland, to rebuild their cities, even to rebuild their temple, to return to their former way of life. Great King Nebuchadnezzar, who he spent so much time with in these first chapters of Daniel, he's dead now. When we come to Daniel 5, he's, he's gone. Nebuchadnezzar's son, his successor, ruled for two years and then was murdered by Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. Four years later, that man was deemed unfit to rule and he was himself murdered. That's how those things went back in those days. And so now we have a new man in charge, and his name is Belshazzar. So everybody say Belshazzar. So Belshazzar is in charge of the capital city. He's in charge of Babylon proper. Uh, Interestingly, people used to point at this name, and they would scoff. And they would say, this is just another example of how the book of Daniel must be fiction because we have no records of a Belshazzar ever ruling in Babylon. Well then, some decades ago, a cuneiform tablet was found, and guess whose name was there? Belshazzar. And so it is now widely accepted that Belshazzar was in fact a co-regent with his own father, Nabonidus, at the end of the Babylonian empire. So Nabonidus, the father, was the warrior king who spent his time out fighting, but he actually left ruling the empire to his son, Belshazzar. And so when we come to chapter 5, Belshazzar is holding down the Babylonian fort here at home. Or at least that's what he should have been doing. Perhaps you know the story. Uh, I think it's fascinating. There are different versions of it. But the traditional story coming to us from the ancient Greek historians goes something like this. The city of Babylon was under siege by the Persians. And it was a a battle of wills. Um, Because of pride... The Babylonians felt confident that they were safe and the Persians would never be able to break the city walls and get into them. They believed they could outlast the Persians. Uh, Like Nebuchadnezzar before, remember Nebuchadnezzar looking over his kingdom, boasting in what he had built? The Babylonians felt sure that these pesky Persians would not be able to overcome their protections. And in fact, the city of Babylon had stored up provisions enough to last them several years within the city. So there was no danger of running out of food anytime soon. And the Persians kept making attempts to get into the city, and they kept failing to do so. And so the Babylonians were feeling confident, even though the city was under siege by the Persians. Well, on one particular evening... The Babylonians were celebrating the feast of sin. Now, we think sin, we think immorality. Uh, Sin was a god, a moon god. Uh, Abraham worshipped the moon god sin before God called him and saved him out of that kind of life. And so the Babylonians on this day were celebrating uh, the festival of sin. And this was a celebration full of revelry, full of drunkenness and immorality and debauchery. The whole city was caught up in this festival. What they didn't realize is that the Persians now had a new plan. The Euphrates River went through the city of Babylon and provided its drinking water the Persians dug a basin and rerouted enough of the Euphrates River to lower the level of the river so that men could now travel through the riverbed tunnels into the city. And it proved to be a complete surprise attack. The Persians found the Babylonians too drunk and wasted from their partying to even fight. The Persians took the city without a battle. That very night, when the Persians took the city, King Belshazzar was killed, and a man named Darius the Mede, serving under Cyrus of Persia, took authority of the city. That night is the night that what happens in Daniel 5 took place. So this is, this is a crucial night here in Daniel chapter 5. Um, and the lessons for us are... Many And so we're just going to try and hit on the important ones. We'll look at this this morning. We will finish up tonight in studying this chapter. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. This is the very Word of God. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver... That Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. So stop there. So we have a feast. And it's not just any feast. We're told this is, this is a great feast. This is a feast fit for a king. Uh, this is a feast with food enough for more than a thousand people. So you can just, just use your imagination and just see all of this food laid out on tables, stretching out throughout this great royal hall in the palace of Babylon. All of these fine meats and colorful vegetables and fruits of various kinds, delicacies, all of these set out on on the finest royal dishes. This is a royal banquet. And you maybe have seen in movies how this is portrayed. uh, The king would have his own table elevated above all the others, sitting in his royal seat. And the king's table is at the head of the room. Uh, and we actually, through archaeology and some excavations, we kind of know what this looked like. We know that, that he really did sit at the head of the room. He had his own table. It was higher than everybody else's table. We know that it was lit by these golden candelabras, um, similar to, to what we have, except they were candles. And then everybody would feast, right? It was, it was a royal party. But then things begin to get out of control. And that wasn't unusual for a Babylonian royal party. Uh, It's no accident that there are a thousand lords who have been invited and that Pelshazzar has also brought his entire harem of concubines. These feasts were given in honor of pagan gods. And those gods were worshipped through the sacrifices of drunkenness and sexual immorality of all kinds. In this party, we are told that the trouble began when Belshazzar tasted the wine. Now, wine is celebrated in Scripture as a drink that gladdens the heart of man. But we are also warned over and over again about the dangers of drunkenness and how wine is a mocker that can make even the wisest men act like fools. The ESV says the king had tasted the wine, but the actual idea is that the king has begun to feel the effects of the wine. It's under the influence of the wine, which is why it keeps repeating that, that Belshazzar does something really, really foolish. So what does Belshazzar do? He calls for the holy vessels to be brought out. Belshazzar calls for his servants to bring him the vessels of gold and silver that his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. These were sacred items, these were holy items. These were items that had been forged for the service of God alone, crafted to be used by God's priests in his temple alone. These were drinking vessels that had been dedicated to the one and only true God. It would have been bad enough for these vessels to have been treated as common cups. But this is worse. They are being intentionally used by this king at an immoral feast devoted to the service of false gods. Verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what are we witnessing here? We are witnessing the defilement of the sacred. We are witnessing the profaning of the holy. What does it mean when someone steps on an American flag end of the day, that flag is just fabric, what's the big deal? Well, most would say that it matters not because of the flag itself, but because of what that flag represents. Uh, Many would say that, that that American flag represents this nation, the principles of this land, even the countless thousands who have given and sacrificed so much, even their very lives, that this nation would be free. And so many find it abhorrent when people treat the American flag with disrespect. Well, this was something much worse because these vessels themselves, they were just cups. They were made of gold and silver, so they weren't just everyday cups. They were, they were you know, precious cups, but, but they were still just cups. But what really matters is whose they were. What really matters is who they were made for and the God to whom they belonged. These vessels had been set apart by God and therefore they were to be set apart in the hearts and the minds of men. When God sets something apart, we are to set it apart. When God declares something to be holy, it is to be treated as holy with reverence and with honor. We show our reverence for God by honoring those things that He has deemed to be sacred. We in America don't count hardly anything as sacred anymore, do we? What is sacred to you? Let's take the name of our God. Do you cringe when you hear the name of God misused? Some people use the name of God as a vulgarity. They they curse and they use his name. That's one form of profaning the holy, the holy name of God. Others simply use God's name as a common expression, like, oh my God, or in our digital age, OMG, right? Right? But friends, words do represent the things or the ideas that they stand for. Anytime we use a word that stands for the great God of the universe, we ought to do so with humility and honor and real reverence for him. To treat the name of God like a football to be thrown around in any way we would choose. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy it's not only a great sin against the holy 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 God it also does terrible things to our own hearts and souls our hearts get darkened as we treat the name of God recklessly and this is true with other things that God has deemed to be holy When we do not treat those things that God has set apart as holy in our own minds, we serve the cause of the devil because our own pride and our own flesh is nourished. But when we treat those things God has deemed holy with the respect that He deserves, it has a sanctifying, humbling, grace-filled effect on our lives. The Bible is holy, the Holy Bible. Right? Now, that's not the packaging, the binding, the glue, the paper, the, the ink, but the Bible itself, the words of God are holy. And that means they are to be set apart in our hearts and our, our minds. We, we are to treat the Word of God with care. We don't, we don't put the Bible alongside you know, the words of Mother Teresa or the words of Mahatma Gandhi or you know, the words of C.S. Lewis. No, we we set the Bible apart. It's it's higher. It has an authority that other books do not have. And it is a dangerous thing to ignore the word of God. It is a dangerous thing to go against the word of God or to contradict the word of God. And it is a dangerous thing to, to twist the word of God, to misuse it as Belshazzar is doing with the holy vessels here. Today is a holy day, right? The Lord's day. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, these are man-made holidays, but God has given us a, a holy day, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. In your heart and in your mind, do you see this day is different than the other days of the week? Is there a way that you keep this day sacred? As you're here this morning, are you here with reverence for this day because you reverence the God who set it apart for your sake. Remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. One more application. How do you treat God's people in your life? Because God has declared that His people are holy in His sight. God's people, Christians, are a set-apart people. His Holy Spirit dwells within God's people. Christ's church is called His holy temple. In Bible times, if you wanted to go up to the temple, you were to approach the temple with great care. You were to cleanse your external body to make sure that you are humble and penitent inwardly. God's people are His true temple, and we are to treat God's people with extreme care. We are to speak to God's children with love and respect and humility. We are never to manipulate one another. We are never to use one another. We are never to deceive or disregard one another. This is a misuse of what God has called holy. We are to have each other's welfare in mind. We are to count each other more important than ourselves. Our desire should be to adorn the house of God, not to trash the house of God. And I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about God's people, I'm talking about serving one another and being careful how we speak about one another and growing in the glorious art of encouraging one another. We show our love and our reverence and our awe for God by holding His sacred, what He calls sacred, and He calls His people sacred. Here in Daniel 5, we find Belshazzar leading the people and profaning the holy vessels of God. And look what happens, beginning in verse 5. Let's read verses 5 through 9 and see what happens. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So this is something that does not happen every day. Note first this hand, this this hand that just appears. It's a floating hand moving along the wall, writing I mentioned earlier about excavations. In the early 1900s, an excavation of ancient Babylon, which is in Iraq, was performed by the German archaeologist Robert Caldway. And one of the things that that excavation proved once and for all is that the astounding hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, he proved that they were in fact real and not myth but Colterweight also found that the walls of the palace of Babylon were, in fact, covered in white plaster. And that fits perfectly, doesn't it? With verse 5, which speaks of the plaster of the wall and talks about this handwriting. Well, you can see how that would show up well on this white plaster wall to everyone present in the room. The king's response, of course, is is almost comical. We're we're told twice that his his color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, his his knees are knocking together. This is a man who was so full of pride just a moment ago, and suddenly he's filled with with fear. And keep in mind, he's also full of wine. So what does the king do? He calls for his wise men but not for Daniel or Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego who have proven so useful in times past those men held important roles during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar but Nebuchadnezzar is now long dead and with new regimes regimes <laughs> with new regimes come new wise men and so Daniel and his friends have faded out of importance in Babylon The men being called upon here have been appointed by Belshazzar, these astrologers and enchanters that that he trusts to give him guidance from the gods. And he offers them a high prize. He says, purple clothing, a chain of gold, the third highest seat in the land. Remember, Belshazzar is technically second. Right? And his dad, the warrior king, is out fighting his first. So he's basically offering the right-hand position in his administration to whoever can read these words. The winner would basically hold in Belshazzar's government the same position that Daniel used to hold in Nebuchadnezzar's government. But you and I know what these folks didn't. We know the Persians are on their way even as he's talking. We know that this is the last night of Belshazzar's life but they don't know that and so this sounds like a very tempting prize to them what did the wise men have to do to win this prize all they had to do was read the writing on the wall and explain to the king what it meant and they came and they saw and they could not even make out the characters they did not have an answer for this king And the king's fear only increased. And so, enter her majesty, the queen. Look at what happens in verse 10. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now just so you know, this queen is not Belshazzar's wife. Uh, his wives were already in the room. This is the queen mother. Um, some people think this was Belshazzar's mother. Many believe, probably the majority believe, this is actually perhaps his grandmother or great-grandmother, Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Right? It, it, not that many years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's very possible that this is actually Nebuchadnezzar's wife, his widow, who who is speaking here. And the queen tells Belshazzar about this man, Daniel, who was helpful to Babylon in years gone by. She says that the spirit of the gods was found in him and that he had great understanding and wisdom and the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles. Now, Herman, can I just remind you that Daniel had nothing more than what you Or I have. He had nothing more than what you or I have. The Spirit that caused Daniel to grow in understanding and wisdom is the same Holy Spirit that dwells today in believers of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we too are growing in knowledge, we too are growing in understanding, we too are growing in wisdom. The Spirit works through the Word, the Spirit, works through Christian fellowship and through our trials in order to mature us. And God gives us growth as he sees fit. Daniel probably received an unusual measure of grace, especially when you consider how how much godly maturity he seemed to have as a young teenage boy at the beginning of this book. But we should remember that the spirit that was in Daniel, the spirit of Jesus Christ, is also in us if we are Christians. And we should pray that just as the Holy Spirit made Daniel a great man of wisdom, we should ask God that through his spirit he would cause us to be great men and women of wisdom. Fountains of good counsel to all the people in our lives. How was it that Daniel was able to interpret dreams and explain riddles. When none of the wise men could bring a true word to the king, Daniel could. Why? Because of revelation. Because it wasn't that Daniel was super smart. Do You understand that? It wasn't that Daniel just had some strange sixth sense that other people didn't have. No, we've already seen how Daniel got answers. He humbled himself. He prayed and God revealed things to him. That's how he did it. Mount Hermon, what is the Bible that we hold in our hands but revelation from God? And we have way more of it than Daniel ever had. This Bible may not tell you the meaning of a particular dream you had, but the Bible really does unlock. The mysteries of the universe to us. Your Bible reveals to you information that millions have longed for. People wonder where did this world come from? How did it get here? Why does it exist? Where are we headed? Right? You have answers to every one of those questions in the pages of the Bible. People wonder, does my life have any meaning? What what does it mean to be truly human? How do I find real fulfillment? The answers are all right here. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you already know answers to those questions. You can give testimony of how God's Word has transformed your life and given you an understanding that there's no other way to say it except you once were blind and now you see. You're a seeing person in a world of blind people. God has given you revelation. Daniel was unique in Babylon because he had the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And we are called to be unique in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina in 2017 because we have the Spirit of God and we have the Word of God read just a little bit more. We'll save the rest for tonight. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Verse 17 there is so important. Let your gifts be for yourself Give your rewards to another, Daniel says. He's not being rude. He's not being disrespectful to this king. I think E.J. Young nails it in his commentary. He says, Daniel rejects the gifts because he wishes to make it plain that he has no desire for earthly or personal gain or advantage. Furthermore, by his refusal he makes it abundantly clear that come what may, he is determined to declare the truth. How this must have impressed the king, who evidently expected Daniel to be a seeker after reward like the Chaldean wise men. Friends, if you lust for material possessions— If your heart is captured by a desire for earthly advantages, you will not be able to be faithful to the callings God has given you. Do you understand that? You cannot be faithful in whatever callings God has placed upon your life if your heart is being pulled towards material gain, financial gain, a desire to have greater authority in an earthly way, pride, popularity, if you can be bought, if your integrity can be exchanged for stuff or for a higher position at work or for more esteem in the eyes of others, then you will not be able to stand for Jesus when the time comes. Which matters more to you? This is for you to ask yourself. Which matters more to you? Having many earthly possessions Or being faithful to Jesus Christ? Which matters more to you? Being liked by others? Or being faithful to Jesus Christ? Which matters more to you? Being in a high position of authority? Or being faithful to Jesus Christ? The great prize for which Christians run is this. To hear Jesus say, On the last day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Is that not the greatest prize? Don't you want to honor the king who purchased you with his own blood? Then watch your heart and keep it from falling into covetousness. If money and possessions have your heart, Jesus won't. You cannot serve two masters. You must choose one. So I close this way Who is your master this morning? Honestly, look at your life, look at the last week. Who or what are you serving? If you have never come to know Jesus Christ as your master, as your Lord, And as the Savior of your soul, I urge you to to call on him to save you. Jesus can rescue you from your future in hell. He can guarantee you a place with him in heaven. He can wash away your sins. He can reconcile you to the Father. He can teach you how to live a life of true blessing. But you must be willing to lay down everything. Count the cost. Come just as you are, confessing your sins, submitting everything that you are to Him as your Lord, as your Master. Kids, teenagers, adults, are you doing this? Have you done this? Have you begun a life of following the Lord Jesus Christ? Pray that if you have not, that you will this morning, because there is no better position to fill in this world than that of servant to the truest and the wisest and the best king that there is. More tonight. Let's pray.